0: Right, well, welcome to church. Glad you're here. Uh, if you're kind of new around here, my name is Matthew, one of the pastors, and it's a joy to get to open the scriptures. If you have a copy of the Bible with you, whether digital or printed, why don't you open up Matthew chapter 26. Uh, we'll be there in a minute. If you've got your phone and want to follow along digitally, you can scan the QR code that's on the screen. I'll pull out your camera on your phone, and it'll take you to a little link. where It'll take you to a spot on our website where you can follow along today. Uh, But I encourage you to get your Bibles out. If you got them, something to take some notes with, to jot some things down. We're coming to the end of this collection uh, entitled The King Jesus Gospel. And we've kind of said from the very onset, the very beginning of this, over a year ago now, that the King Jesus gospel is a story of redemption that is being completed, primarily in the life of Jesus. All of the Bible, kind of two huge themes that you'll find all of the Bible from the very beginning of Genesis all the way through the last word written in the book of Revelation, all of it is a thread and a theme pointing to Jesus, helping us see that God was coming to bring redemption, And to renew all things. In fact, that's a big crux of what we've discovered as we've journeyed through the Gospel of Matthew together. We've been journeying through this Gospel to look at what Jesus taught, looking at what Jesus said, look at what He did, what He demonstrated, what He came to proclaim and inaugurating in this kingdom of God. And and we've defined kind of the Gospel with this liturgy that we said today at the top of our service and our corporate reading. We've been asking this question, what is the gospel? What is it? It's a term maybe you've heard, but we've kind of expounded the definition. And and we've said it this way, that the gospel is the good news that God, our Father, the creator, out of his great love for us, has come to rescue us from sin, from Satan, from death and hell, and to renew all things in and through the work of Jesus Christ on our Behalf to establish His kingdom through His people who participate in loyal allegiance and the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is for God's great glory and our astounding and profound joy. This is the summary of what it is for us to say we believe in the gospel. We believe in this, that there is redemption And renewal of who God is and what he's done. And today, as we get into the text, I want us to pay attention to the climax of what is beginning to occur. uh, Of the story of redemption that is nearing its completion. Nearing its final uh, period at the end of the final chapter of the story of redemption that God has been writing throughout history. And we're seeing this culminate in the life of Jesus specifically In this week that is called Holy Week, this week that kicks off with Palm Sunday and all throughout this week, certain events of the life of Jesus that are significant. Friday is called Good Friday. Saturday is called Holy and Silent Saturday because it was a day of what seemed like inactivity in our world. And then we find ourselves celebrating next Sunday with the resurrection of Jesus and the great joy and the pronouncement of redemption, but the beginning now of renewal that begins with his resurrection. And these are the themes that we're looking at. And so today, as we look at the final moments of how Jesus came to complete the story of redemption, that's what we want to look at today in today's readings and our text. So Matthew 26, we're going to start in verse 57. Matthew 26, verse 57, it says this. Then the people who had arrested Jesus led him to the home of Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of religious law and elders had gathered. Meanwhile, Peter followed him at a distance and came to the high priest's courtyard. He went in and sat with the guards and waited to see how it would all end. Inside, the leading priest and the entire council were trying to find witnesses who would lie about Jesus so they could put him to death. But even though they found many who agreed to give false witness, they could not use any of those testimonies. Finally, two men came forward who declared, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, Well, aren't you going to answer these charges? What do you have to say for yourself? But Jesus remained silent. Then the high priest said to him, I demand in the name of the living God, tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. Jesus replied, You have said it. And in the future, you will see the Son of Man seated in the place of, honor, of the place of power at God's right hand and coming in the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothing to show his horror and said, Blasphemy! Why do we need other witnesses? You've all heard this blasphemy. What's your verdict? Guilty! They all shouted. He deserves to die. Then they began to spit in Jesus' face and beat him with their fists. Some slapped him, jeering, prophesy to us, you Messiah, who hit you that time? Jesus was now beginning to experience some cross-examination of his life and his teachings. On trial, before the religious leaders, putting up asking and scrutinizing everything that he's ever said, everything that he's ever done in an attempt to um, expedite some cancel culture, in an attempt to find reasons to dismiss this man and more than just dismiss him, kill him off and everything that he stood for. Jesus was beginning to experience some cross-examination here. Ultimately, it would lead to uh, another trial in front of Pilate and some more beatings and some other things. But for now, it was the religious people. It was the people who were in the community of God that were cross-examining Jesus. You know, I think it's worth pointing and noting that many people, not only in church, but in the culture in which we live, are still putting Jesus on trial. They are cross-examining some things. Maybe you find yourself in that, that place where people have told you about church, they've told you about God, they've told you about some things, but you need to see for yourself. You're doing your own study. You're doing your own examination. You're you're expanding and exploring what he said, what he taught. You're using logic and you're using reason and you're trying to find data and science. And and then, of course, you're looking and examining the people who claim to follow him and you're yourself wondering, can I trust not only these people but this man they say they worship? You are cross-examining the truths that have been presented in Scripture. I think that's a good process. I think that's healthy. I applaud those of you who are exploring, but I hope that you are being honest enough in your exploration to really look in. I, I think there people throughout the years, there's a man by the name of Lee Strobel. In, in, uh, he eventually wrote a book called The Case for Christ, and they turned it into a movie in recent years. and Really, really compelling, and I encourage you to, to go watch it on Netflix if you have the opportunity. But Lee Strobel was an atheist whose wife began to follow Jesus, and he was like, nah, not as long as I'm living. We're not going to waste our time on the claims of Christ. And he set out to prove that the resurrection of Jesus never even happened. And what he found as he went along, his cross-examination led him to bow his knee at the cross of Christ too. Think about a man by the name of Mark Clark who's pastored and pioneered a great church in Canada, is now in uh, California written several books. One is called The Problem of God, the other The Problem of Jesus. Fantastic reads from the skeptic's perspective. Mark Clark was a self-proclaimed atheist, wanting nothing to do with God, believing God didn't exist, and was certain of it, and set out to prove the reality that Jesus was a fraud, only to himself, among his own cross-examination, to also realize Jesus is who he said he was, and he's worth surrendering and following his life. Now, in our cultural moment, we find ourselves in a place where many people are giving false testimony about Jesus. It doesn't take you long to scroll on TikTok and you automatically have found some theologians, self-proclaimed of course, telling you about their church experience and how it's not this and that and you don't need to trust the church. You won't look very far before you find people trying to say things that are a little misleading, not a little, a lot misleading about the claims that the Bible has and presenting. Those people are a dime a dozen, they're, they're everywhere. Now, I want to be cautious with us today uh, because uh, over the years, I've heard people get in online arguments and somebody says, well, I'm an atheist. And all of a sudden, the the atheists uh, are out of the woodworks and then the Christians are coming to combat and yell and kind of uh, confront the atheist. And you'll find uh, people eventually will say something along the lines of, well, don't you know an atheist is just someone who used to believe in God, who got hurt and offended and that's all they are now? which is a really dumb thing to say. And if you're one of those who holds to that view and your thought and your thought of atheists in that way, would you just stop, please, for the love of all that is holy? It is not helpful. It's not kind. It is not compassionate. And you're not helping anyone reason and rationalize away. We find ourselves in a cultural moment where there are many things that culture is telling us that we have to do, that we have to believe that is very contrary to what scripture says. Very contrary to what is the truth of God's word. And you, fi- you might have asked yourself just in light of recent events in our nation, asking yourself what on earth is happening right now? And how as followers, how are we supposed to live and respond and act in this way? Can I give you three things? As followers of Jesus, number one, live and speak with compassion. Number two, actually live a flourishing, mature Christianity. And number three, become intelligent about what you actually believe. Don't settle for memes and trite comments. Live with some compassion and kindness in the way that you speak. Oh, but by all means... I hope you're developing a flourishing, mature faith. Not something that is just a consumer thing that you're adding into your life where you you come and know just enough of the Bible to be snarky about things in culture. No, 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 no. I hope you're falling so in love with Jesus that you're presenting a compelling, counter-cultural reality of people looking and be like, actually, that's a lifestyle that I actually kind of like. I hope you're becoming the kind of person that is maturing and growing in your faith to where people look at your life and they'll be like, you know what? I might not know all that they believe nor agree with all that they believe, but those people love and are passionate and are committed and are kind, and they've got some things happening in their midst that feels like family, and I deeply long for that kind of a thing. I don't believe everything that this guy believes, but man, he sure seems to have a lot of joy, and I don't have any right now. Would you just mature and grow yourself up in the faith a little bit? That's part of how we create a counter- cultural movement? What if the people of God became an oasis of love, an oasis of generosity, an oasis of truth, an oasis of joy, an oasis of peace, that every time people interact with you, even though they are cross-examining everything they believe uh, or that you believe, they can't deny the fact that there is something refreshing about being in your midst that is different than being in the midst of anyone else that they've had to deal with. What if you actually just became a mature follower of Jesus and lived the ways of Jesus instead of using the ways of Jesus as a sword to try to cut people down because they've chosen a life and a lifestyle and a thought process that you don't agree with? Oh, and then finally, please, by all means, before you use a scripture, you better know the context of the scripture, why it's been said, and you better start learning what you believe and why. Become intelligent and have real conversation with people. Well, I don't know, I, you should just go talk to my pastor. No, they're wanting to talk to you. You have the relationship. Well, I don't really know why or how or where it's said in the Bible and why. Be, then start learning. That's the point. There are people who are cross-examining their faith. And you probably have cross-examined faith. What are the rational, real, and true things that you found yourself believing? In this moment, Jesus was facing cross-examination of the religious leaders. That eventually led him to a moment where the crowd that was once cheering Hosanna was now shouting, crucify him. Oh, because the crowd and popular opinion is very, very fickle. All it takes is some well-planned propaganda whispered in the masses to create a different narrative. They went from shouting Hosanna on Palm Sunday to on the morning of Good Friday yelling, crucify that man. Oh, how quickly culture and popular opinion can change. And that crowd turned against him ultimately led to Jesus carrying a cross and being nailed to it. This is the story of redemption finding its culmination. Let's read about this crucifixion. Matthew 27, starting in verse 32. Let's pick up the account. It says this, along the way, they had come across a man named Simon who was from, from Cyrene, and the soldiers forced him to carry Jesus's cross. Pause. Why are they having to? Because Jesus cannot hardly stand up. They have beaten him with whips, They have placed a crown of thorns on his head. They have mocked and jeered and spit. And he is feeling physically at the edge of death. And they've been asking him to carry a huge beam now. So they find this man from Cyrene to carry the cross for him. And they went out to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Soldiers gave Jesus a wine mixed with bitter gall, but when he tasted it, he he refused to drink it. After they had nailed him to the cross, the soldiers gambled for his clothes by throwing dice. Notice these details. Then they sat around and kept guard as he hung there. A sign was fastened above Jesus' head announcing the charge against him. It read, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Two revolutionaries were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. And the people passing by shouted abuse, shaking their heads in mockery. Look at you now, they yelled. You said you were going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Well then, if you are the son of God, why don't you save yourself and come down from the cross? Pause I don't know if that's really how they said it, but I think it's helpful for us to see the mockery, the sneering, nay, I say the sarcasm. Have you ever prayed a prayer? Well, God, if you're real, why don't you do this for me? Oh, if your power is so powerful, why don't you do this? That's the same heart and tone. That many of these people are mocking Jesus with. Verse 39 the people passing, shouting these abuse, shaking their heads. Look at you now, they yelled, You were going to destroy the temple, rebuild it in three days. Well, then, if you are the Son of God, save yourself and come down from the cross. The leading priests, the teachers of religious law, and the elders also mocked Jesus. He saved others, they scoffed, but he can't even save themselves. So he is the king of Israel, is he? Let him come down from the cross right now, and then, of course, we'll believe him. He trusted God, so let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. Even the revolutionaries who were crucified with him ridiculed him in the same way. Now at noon, darkness fell across the whole land until three o'clock. At about 3 o'clock, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani, which means my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Some of the bystanders misunderstood, and they thought he was calling for the prophet Elijah. One of them ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, holding it up to him on a reed so he could drink. But the rest said, wait, let's see if, whether or not Elijah comes to save him. Then Jesus shouted out again, and he released his spirit. And at that moment, the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, rocks split apart, tombs opened. The bodies of godly men and women who had died were raised from the dead. They, they left the cemetery after the resurrection. Uh, Jesus' resurrection went into the holy city of Jerusalem and appeared to many. And the Roman officer and the other soldiers at the crucifixion were terrified by the earthquake and all that had happened. And they said, This man truly was the Son of God. Now, there are some amazing details in this section of Scripture that we just read. I want to speak for just a second on the validity of the crucifixion itself, why we can trust this account as true, historical, real reality. In fact, there are an overwhelming majority of Historians who have any level of intellectual integrity can agree that this account and these events indeed happened. One of the things that the Bible writers do is in their telling of the story of the life of Jesus, they use real historical figures. I mean, Caiaphas was a verified Pharisee, the high priest at the time. That was it's known throughout Jewish history and other non-religious historical writings. Pontius Pilate was indeed a Roman governor. The situation and the story and the reality of the events that occurred are indeed rooted in real historical events, not to mention the details that we know of how Romans would torture and crucify those they found guilty. Much has been written throughout history on these details, and those details align appropriately and correctly with the details we see in the scriptures. The gospels spell out in detail these events on the crucifixion, not some vague mythological symbolism. No, these were real events that occurred, and, and I know some of you might be sitting there and, and the big pushback that you would find on TikTok or in your uh, philosophy class or in some other college uh, setting or those that you have heard is that, well, that might be true and the Bible might say it that way, but you can't trust the Bible. It's an ancient document that you can't trust. To which, again, you have to push back and say when it comes to documents of antiquity. There is not another ancient text that has more validity than the copies that we have of the New Testament. In fact, when it comes to documents of antiquity, trusting and representing them as reliable and trustworthy documents and its content being as such, there are several uh, measuring points to measure whether or not a document is valid or not. Two of the most important parts of that are, number one, the number of copies of the original that you have and the time between the events that are being written about and when the writing was done, that time span between the events and the writing of them, how much time had passed in that time. Those are two of the most important things as to whether or not you can trust the reliability of a text. Now, let's take something. I've talked about this before, so I'm just going to use kind of one uh, example. Aristotle's Poetics, which philosophers and, and poetry people and those of Greek studies will tell you is reliable and true. And we know Aristotle wrote them, and we trust what he said. We have five copies of Aristotle's writings in that way. And those five copies, the earliest copy was 1,400 years when it was penned from when the original was written and the copy was made, 1,400 years. Now, in contrast, we have over 25,000 copies of the New Testament documents that we hold. 25,000, with the gospel of Mark being the most recent or the the shortest span of time. In other words, the gospel of Mark was written in 70 AD. Well, Jesus died in 30 AD because he only lived to be, right, like in his, like young 30s, right? So it's not very, so 40 years after the death of Jesus, the gospel of Mark was penned. 40 years. Not 1,400, 40. The Gospels themselves have the shortest span in between of these documents. So when it comes to the documents as to whether or not they're reliable in the sense of antiquity, they surpassingly pass that as, yeah, you can trust what's written here. But even then, you go look at other historical documents that were written that are trusted as part of our intellectual understanding of history, and you find that they confer the details of the crucifixion that we have just read. I I found interesting in the book, The Problem of Jesus, Mark Clark quotes um, and talks about an astrological anomaly that occurred at the time of Jesus' death. Uh, The the sky that went dark for three hours was an astrological anomaly. It was unheard of. It it boggled the mind. In fact, it boggled the mind so much that Thallus, an early historian who wrote a three-volume history of the Mediterranean world from before the Trojan War all the way to the 167th Olympiad, noted this, an eclipse of the sun was unreasonably present because a solar eclipse could not take place at the time of a full moon and it was at the season of the Paschal full moon That Christ died. In other words, the sky that went dark for three hours was an eclipse that should not by all reasons occur. But it was such an anomaly that historians and those who were witnessing were like, oh my gosh, this happened. We've got to write down and talk about this eclipse. And so they wrote about it. Now, for some of you who are like, Pascal full moon, I don't even understand what that is. I didn't either, actually, until this week. And so I went to all things reliable. I went to the farmersalmanac.com. Not to be confused with farmersonly.com, the dating service. I got me a farmer's daughter. I'm happy and we good. But according to FarmersAlmanac.com, the Paschal Full Moon is the first full moon after the spring equinox. The Paschal Full Moon is significant because it determines which date Easter falls on each year, which is why Easter is a movable holiday occurring from late March to late April. It's all depending on this Paschal Full Moon. And why do we do it that way? Because it was during that season That the anomaly occurred, there was an eclipse that seemed unreasonable but noticed by all and well written about in outside of biblical writings, verifying that detail alone. The crucifixion is trustworthy in terms of the account in which we've read. C.S. Lewis points out that death on the cross was so horrific that the cross did not become common in art until the 4th century when all who had seen one used had died off. See, victims would die a slow and painful death, passing in and out of consciousness. Most died of asphyxiation, suffocating uh, suffocating to death because they lacked the strength to lift their head and give their lungs space to expand. The gospel tells us Jesus was on the cross for about six hours, agonizing. And it was with some of those struggling breaths Jesus would muster just enough. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Those words were not Jesus beginning to deconstruct his faith? Those words were not Jesus denying God and rejecting? Those words were not moments of doubt even for Jesus? Those words were Jesus quoting Psalm 22, rooting himself in continued communion with God the Father In his darkest, most painful, physically excruciating moment. And Jesus was quoting just a portion of it. Because I guarantee you he quoted just enough to mentally recall the rest of it. And any good Jew that was within earshot who heard him yell, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Would have automatically in their mind known that he was talking and beginning to quote, Psalm 22. Jesus used this tactic many times throughout his teachings. He would start a phrase, you've heard it said, and only would quote a little bit of the verse. And every person in the audience would be able to fill in the gaps knowing exactly what he was saying. It's like if I were to say, and for those of you who have been a part of church for a long time, God is good, you would respond all the time. Why? Because you know how to fill in that gap. It's just a verbal cue. Next Sunday, we're going to stand, and we're going to say and declare, he is risen, and the people of God are going to respond. He's I didn't even have to tell you what to say. You knew what to say. You could fill it in. Jesus was saying the same things, and you find the rest of it in Psalm 22. Let's go there and look at this. He says this, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why are you so far from, away from when I groan for help? Every day I call to you, my God, but you do not answer. Every night I lift my voice, but I find no relief. You are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. Our ancestors trusted in you and you rescued them. They cried out to you and they were saved. They trusted in you and were never disgraced. But I am a worm and not a man. I am scorned and despised by all. Everyone who sees me mocks me. They sneer and shake their heads saying, Is this the one who relies on the Lord? Then let the Lord save him. And if the Lord loves him so much, let the Lord rescue him. Yet you brought me safely from my mother's wombs and led me to trust you at my mother's breast. I am thrust into your arms at my birth, and you have been my God from the moment I was born. Do not stay so far away from me for my trouble is near and no one else can help me. My enemies surround me like a herd of bulls. Fierce bulls of Bashan have hemmed me in like lions. They open their jaws against me, roaring and tearing into their prey. My life is poured out like water and all of my bones feel out of joint. My heart is like wax melting within me. My strength is dried up like sun-baked clay. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You have laid me in the dust and left me for dead. My enemies surround me like a pack of dogs, an evil gang closes in on me. They've pierced my hands and my feet. They count all of my bones. My enemies stare at me and they gloat. They divide my garments among themselves and throw dice for my clothing. O Lord, do not stay far away from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to my aid. Save me from the sword. Spare my precious life from these dogs. Snatch me from the lion's jaw and from the horns of the wild oxen. I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. I will praise you among your assembled people. Praise the Lord, all you who fear him. Honor him, all you descendants of Jacob. Show him reverence, all you descendants of Israel, for he has not ignored or belittled the suffering of the needy. He has not turned his back on them, but has listened to their cries for help. I will praise You in the great assembly. I will fulfill my vow in the presence of those who worship you. The poor will eat and be satisfied. All who seek the Lord will praise Him. Their hearts will rejoice with everlasting joy. The whole earth will acknowledge the Lord and return to Him. All the families of the nations will bow down before Him, for royal power belongs to the Lord. He rules all the nations. Let the rich of the earth feast and worship, bow before Him. All who are mortal, all whose lives will end as dust. Our children will also serve Him. Future generations, that's us, will will hear about the wonders of the Lord. His righteous acts will be told to those not yet born. They will hear about everything that he has done. Oh, Jesus was worshiping the Father with the very breath that was left in his lungs. And all who heard him yell out, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Would have in that moment had to go back to this prophetic messianic song. And realize, oh snap, as they roll the dice one more time for his clothing. As they sneer and mock, yeah, why don't you? Oh, wait. And the cross-examination that they had been doing and the crucifixion which they had now witnessed. Perhaps some of them were beginning to see this is the culmination of redemption before my eyes. This is what was happening in the crucifixion. Isaiah 53 pens it a little bit different. The prophet Isaiah would point towards this moment of the crucifixion on Good Friday. L- listen to Isaiah's words Who has believed our message? To whom has the Lord revealed his powerful arm? My servant grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender green shoot, like a root in dry ground. There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows acquainted with deepest grief. We turned on backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and he did not care, yet it was our weaknesses he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down, and we thought his troubles were a punishment for God, a punishment for for his own sins. Oh, but he was pierced. For our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be made whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We have left God's path to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was like a lamb being led to the slaughter. And as a sheep is silent before its shearers, he did not open his mouth. Unjustly condemned, he was led away. No one cared that he died without descendants, that his life was cut short in midstream. But he was struck down for the rebellion of my people. He had done no wrong and had never deceived anyone but he was buried like a criminal. He was put in a rich man's grave. But it was the Lord's good plan to crush him and cause him grief. Yet when his life is made an offering for sin, he will have many descendants. He will enjoy a long life, and the Lord's good plan will prosper in his hands. When he sees all that is accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. And because of his experience, my righteous servants will make it possible for many to be counted... Righteous, for he will bear all of their sins. I will give him the honor of a victorious soldier because he exposed himself to death. He was counted among the rebels. He bore the sins of many and interceded for rebels. Hi, my name is Matthew. And I was born a rebel full of rebellion, living my own way. Oh, but the Savior, oh, but God, rich in mercy, saw it as his good will to crush his son and make him be the rebel so that this rebel could exit his rebellion and be called righteous. That is how the crucifixion fulfilled the culmination of redemption. That's how he paid the price for you and me to become sons of God and daughters of God. That's why we can call Friday coming up Good Friday. Pastor, why are you reading so much scripture? It's taking a lot of time. Yep, because you need to be a follower of Jesus who knows why you believe what you believe. These are the passages you should go back and meditate on this week as you think about these things. But it wasn't just the crucifixion that did something profound and amazing. See, the next part that happened was Jesus died, lifted up his spirit, and there was a curtain in the temple that was torn top to bottom and torn into, ripped from top to bottom. Why is this curtain so important? Well, because the writer of the Gospel of Matthew has gone out of his way the entire book over the last year I have pointed this out as we have guided our way through it but he has gone out of his way to articulate and to emphasize that Jesus is the completion of the redemption story that he began from the very beginning for all of God's people. One of my favorite commentary that I use in my study says this about the curtain being writ. In Matthew 24, 27, 45, and 46, 56, it says, this is what the commentary says. This is the huge curtain of the temple separated off the sacred interior so that its destruction was not just an act of divine power from top to bottom foreshadowing the greater destruction to come, but it also was a symbol of the opening of access to God through the death of Jesus. It opened the way for you and I to now go into the presence of God, not as rebels, but as righteous. Not without a high priest, but with a high priest who is now seated, interceding for you and me at the right hand of God. There was something significant. In fact, you can read all through Hebrews chapter 8 Chapter 9 and chapter 10, as it expounds on Jesus being the lamb that was slain. Jesus continuing to be our high priest forever and ever. And that he is the king of all who's worthy of our worship. This week, I encourage you, read Hebrews chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10. And begin to see how Jesus was writing and doing these things. Let me read you just one, one verse, though. Hebrews 10, 19 through 22 says this. And so, dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. By his death, Jesus opened a new and life-giving way through the curtain into the most holy place. And since we have a great high priest who rules over God's house, let us go right into the presence of God with sincere hearts fully trusting in him. For our guilty consciences have been sprinkled with Christ's blood to make us clean, and our bodies have been washed pure with water. And speaking of our baptism, by the way. See, something is happening when this curtain was ripped. It was the most holy place. It was the place in the temple where God chose to let his presence abide. And the high priest, only one high priest, once a year could go into the most holy presence of God. They had to do all of these sacrifices to make sure they were clean, to make sure they were righteous, to make sure they had properly done all of the details fully satisfying the redemption of God's people. Because if they walked into the presence of God, without proper covering of the blood of the lamb, they would die instantly. But but Jesus became that high priest once and for all. He is our high priest. He made that sacrifice of himself as the lamb. And because of his sacrifice on the cross, the curtain could be ripped so that you can experience the presence of God in your own life, and you could become the temple of the Lord where the Spirit of God wants to dwell and live and move in you, where you can move from being rebellious to becoming righteous, and you can be a high priest in, a priest in, in the nation of God where you have a high priest who is Jesus, but you and I are priests in the family of God where we can come and minister to the Lord before him in his presence anytime we need and want which is why we can stand before God on a Sunday gathered together and we can lift up hands that are holy because Jesus has made us his righteousness. He doesn't call you a rebel. He calls you righteous for those who have put their faith in what he's done. For those who have finished their cross-examination and decided to bow their life at the foot of the cross, no longer mocking, but now worshiping. That's what we get to see and do. I want to invite the worship team to come back to the stage. We're going to end today in a moment of worship and communion. If you would go ahead and, and pull out your communion elements. And if you would go ahead and stand. See, it was a cross-examination that led to his crucifixion that eventually led to the curtain being torn and ripped in two, which led to something amazing happening. At the end of Matthew 27, in verse 54, it says that there are Roman officers and the other soldiers at the crucifixion, the ones who nailed the nails whipped the whip rolled the dice gambling for his clothing at the crucifixion were terrified by the earthquake and all that had happened before their eyes that they participated in and the centurion then said this man truly is the son See, when you've done your own cross-examination and you understand what the crucifixion was all about and you hear how the curtain was torn in two, you are left with the decision to make, friends. You're left with the decision. Either either you can ignore the claims that Jesus made and go on living your life as your own God in your own way. It's a choice you can make. You can not just ignore it now, but maybe you could join with all of the cultural pundits and their sarcasm and mockery and in your own conceit continue to mock that people go to church continue to mock that people would even do something as foolish as worshiping God that you can continue to mock God by how you live in your own selfishness defining right and wrong on your own terms you can continue to do that that is a choice you can make so you can ignore him you can mock him or like the centurion and one of the thieves on the cross, you can concede in repentance to him. And you can say, surely, this man is the son of God. This man is different. This man isn't here because he sinned. This man is on a cross because I'm the rebel. Because I said, And that's why it's a good Friday. That's how the story of redemption gets completed. It ends with you and I making a decision, one way or the other, to concede in repentance to him. Would you bow your heads? And we're bowing our heads not to not embarrass someone but really to examine our own hearts and our own lives what have you been cross-examining lately is it trying to figure out do I want to trust this man or not maybe there's some things in your life you know have distanced you from your own relationship with God and there's repentance you need to make for other acts of rebellion recently Lord, as we stand here in this moment, would you allow our hearts to understand what you did at the cross for us? Lord, we don't want to stay in our conceit and our arrogance, but God, I, I want to be one who can repent and be humble. God, I want to be one who lives fully acknowledging that you are surely the Son of God, who takes away the sins of our world. So Lord, as we stand here with the bread in our hands and the cup, Lord, we thank you that the bread represents your body broken for us your body broken so that we could be made whole in relationship and communion and fellowship with you God so that we could embody your presence everywhere we go we say thank you for the bread and your body broken for us let's take the bread together and Lord we stand here with the cup which represents your blood poured out for us, which brings forgiveness for our rebellious sins. And so Lord, today, we surrender and ask for your forgiveness. We confess that we have led our own lives and walked astray, and Jesus, that we long for your salvation in our lives, your wholeness and forgiveness in our lives. And we say today, thank you, for your forgiveness and sacrifice let's take the cup together thank you Lord let's respond today in worship to the Lord can we do that come on team will you lead us Oh, praise the Fathers ever to the key. King Lord, we thank you today that you are the King, you are the Savior, you are the Lamb, you are our High Priest. Lord, we thank you today that we can stand here lifting hands and voices and being in your presence without fear of lightning bolts striking us for what we did this week. But we can stand forgiven because of the cross. We can stand forgiven because we've made confession and repented. We can stand with all of creation to declare praise forever our king of kings Lord I thank you that those who have been forgiven much know how to express love much and God today we've come confronting our own sin and rebellion but Lord I pray many will have also conceded in repentance to you, the Christ, the Savior of our souls. Lord, we're thankful. We're thankful for what you've done. And indeed, Friday is a good Friday for us. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name. Come on, and the people of God said... Amen. Amen. Hey, God's working on your heart. And maybe there's something that's wrestling and rolling, and you're like, I need to talk with someone, I need to pray this out. We've got a team, they're available. Maybe you're here in this room watching online and you know, man, I I I surrendered to Jesus today. I really came to an acknowledgement that I'm a rebel and I need a savior to make me righteous. You're putting your faith there. Man, awesome, so glad. We have water baptism coming up in two weeks, not next Sunday, but the Sunday after. If you've never been water baptized, now's your time. Seal it, say yes, I'm in. You can talk to our team out at the next step table. They'll help you take those steps and move forward, but let's pack this place out next week and let's celebrate, party, and have a great time worshiping our risen Savior who is among us, amen. I really hope today's message was life-giving. As a church, we wanna help you encounter God and take another next step in your allegiance to Jesus. I wanna ask you to take a step right now, in fact. Would you just share this message with a friend? Maybe post it on your social, text a coworker the link. Just be sure to include something that you learned or how it impacted you personally. When you do that, you get to be a part of seeing faith come to life in someone else. And don't forget to visit our central hub, faithchurchks.org. You'll find other next steps that you can take in your faith, including giving and partnership with us as we help others encounter Jesus like you've encountered him. Hey, we love you. And until we get to hang out again, remember, don't shrink back from your faithful allegiance to King Jesus.